Welcome to the Fellow Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Lesperance. Listen in as I host humble discussions exploring the diverse expressions of Christian spirituality, tradition, and beyond. Enjoy, and safe traveling. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, it's been a couple months, and I'm happy to be back here on the Fellow Traveler. And I have a special guest if you go way back in the archives from last fall, my friend Cal and I um, interrogated <laughs> Andrew <laughs> Andrew Hronich from New Jersey. Well, I don't know. Are you from New Jersey or are you just in New Jersey? I, I am from New Jersey. You're from if, New if Jersey. That's okay to say. <laughs> that's okay to say. I mean, honestly, New Jersey's cool. I mean, there's a lot of cool things about it. No, uh, yeah, ever... I mean, they call it the they call it the Garden State, but the joke is you'd have to not be from New Jersey. To think it was the Garden State. You go there, you say, "Where's the gardens at?" So, Seriously, that's what I wondered. That's a great. It's a great question. I always wondered that myself. But there is a lot of farmland. I've noticed mm. when you leave the more urban areas, it's like just fields and fields, and aspects of it look kind of like upstate New York. I mean, it is kind of close. And have you ever heard of Action Park? I have heard of it. Yes. Have you ever been? I have not, no. no. <laughs> well, back in the day, it was it was a really bad place, apparently. Uh, there's a whole Good thing I didn't go. <laughs> yeah. Back in like the 80s and 90s, a lot of people got hurt there. But uh, that might be before your time because you're you're a spring chicken. I am. Yeah, the 80s and 90s is well before my time. <laughs> yes. That's wild to think about. I mean, I'm a 90s child, but... Um, Welcome back, Andrew. How are you doing these days? I'm, I'm doing good, Peter. I can't complain. I mean, it's it's a different climate here. I went from New Jersey to North Carolina, and in Jersey I left, and it was uh, raining outside. It was just, oh, miserable. Come down here to North Carolina. Beautiful weather. I mean, we're in the 80 degrees now. It's amazing. So I'm very gracious as far as the climate is concerned. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it just got super hot all of a sudden here as well. We reached the 90s the past couple of days. But it's nice. Um, and I hear you, uh, you finally published your book. It's finally out there, the long-awaited. Once I, was, I was wondering at what point, you know, you, I could shamefully plug my book, right? Not, not shamelessly, but shamefully. So I have it right here. I mean, I is. got so excited when the mail carrier came up and delivered the package. I've been waiting two years to hold this in my hands. I mean, the endorsements, awesome. the endorsements are incredible. I mean, as, as you know, there's endorsements from Douglas Campbell, Jerry Walls, Brian Zahn, Gregory Boyd, David Bentley Hart, so many other folks. So just very grateful for the ability to converse with these people, let alone them endorse my work. I just hope that many people will read this and they'll profit from some of my hard labor. Absolutely. I'm really excited to check it out. And um, where can people purchase it? Uh, anywhere you buy books. Uh, you can go on Amazon and they have it in... I know hardcover, paperback, Kindle. 
I know the Kindle version right now is it's number one in Calvinist Christianity. Go figure. <laughs> number wow. one in Christian soteriology. Um, and if you want, as many people do, want the paperback, I'd say go to Withenstock. Those are my publishers. And if you subscribe to their newsletter, you can get 40% off any purchase. So I'd say purchase my book. <laughs> That's the book you yeah. want to purchase. That sounds like a great deal. 30% off. 40% off. Even oh, 40% better. off. Okay, yeah. I see. Yeah, even better. Yeah, that's awesome. And um, are you like the youngest theologian to release a book of this kind of stature? Of, of this caliber? I don't, I don't know. I mean, John Calvin wrote his institutes um, shortly after he was converted. And I think he was around only a couple of years older than me. And the institutes is a fine piece of work. Um, but nowadays I say, yeah, it's very rare. <laughs> so yeah. I'm one of those fortunate few. That's wild. <clears throat> hey, good for you, man. Thank you. Andrew Haranich is what, like 22, 23 years old? These 22, days. 22. You're still 22. Wow. Since the last 22. time I talked to you. That's <laughs> wild. Um, and he's kind of a wonderkind. He's, uh, I don't know where his brain came from, but um, he is able to synthesize everything there is to know about universalism <laughs> somehow. <laughs> I appreciate it. No. But, from what I understand, we we went really in depth into this, um, into a lot of what you were writing about the last time we spoke back in the fall. Uh, you can check out that. I forget which episode it is. I want to say episode two, maybe, of The Fellow Traveler. Um, and we, we spent about three hours talking about various topics. But from what I understand, we're going to talk about um, some things that you weren't even able to get into the book. Is that right? No, yeah. I mean... It's, it's funny because in the edits, I had wanted this to be in the book, but then I realized that this is going to be a completely different project of, in and of itself, and it was just too much material. So I decided to save it, and it will be hopefully out in the next couple of years. I want to do some more writing and research this summer, but um, but yeah, I'm very excited for this future book too. Yeah, and before you, uh, before you share about that, um, tell us a little bit about what's going on at Princeton these days. Sure. Yeah. So uh, I'm halfway through my MTS, my master's in theological studies at Princeton. I'm very excited to finish. Um, if I did have the funds, I wish I could say that England is next as that's where I want to go. Cambridge, Oxford, or the St. Andrews would be my top choice if I could. Um, so right now I'm hoping that this book will sell so that I can go and I can pursue higher education because I hope to be a professor in the near future. Um, and I'm just very grateful that I can be at Princeton. I mean, there are days when I wake up, I say, I can't believe I'm here at this institution, right? Where some of my heroes have come out of. Um, like some of the endorsers, Gregory Boyd and Jerry Walls, were former alumni of the school. And another individual who's an acquaintance of mine, Bart Ehrman, right? He's a very well-known biblical scholar who is from that school. And so I'm very grateful for the professors there, for the peers, right? Who sharpened me every day. And uh, yeah, just a joy being at Princeton. And a lot of people don't know too, uh, I'm a graduate of Liberty University, right? And so uh, mm -hmm. I get the question all the time is, wait, you went to Liberty University? Why the heck did you go to Princeton, right? And uh, the truth is, I think that Liberty University, it's a fine institution in the sense that whatever you're looking to find, you will find at Liberty, right? Whatever views you're looking for, whatever types of friends, whatever fun activities, you're going to find them. So I call it Christian Disneyland simply because it is, I mean, the architecture is amazing as any activity can think of. The food is great. And the people are really, really nice. I mean, even the professors, as you can imagine, who disagree with a lot of the material in my book, they're still good friends of mine, right? And, and, and we disagree amicably 
And I wish more people were like that. So I am just very grateful for the academic path that God has put me on. And I hope that we'll carry on into the future. Wow, that's awesome. And just out of curiosity, like where do you where do you find yourself in the world of Christianity like um, these days? Like, I mean, how would you define your uh, I don't know, ecclesiology or but like where are you at these days? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I grew up Bapto Catholic, I like to say, is because my parents were Baptist, but all my extended family was Catholic. And so it was interesting, you know, sometimes going to Mass and sometimes going to a Baptist service, right? Whereas uh, it was only later on that I started to take a deep dive into Catholicism in particular. And I started to look at it, and there's a lot of things they say, you know, this makes sense. There are other things that I still have questions on. I mean, the Marian dogmas is a tough one for me, the veneration of icons as people who've been following Gavin Ortland uh, should know that this is a big conversation nowadays. And uh, definitely the papacy would be a stumbling block for me. But other things such as infant baptism or generational baptism or different stances mm-hmm. on those topics, I would say, yeah, I can, I can definitely see where they're coming from. In fact, I may agree with them on certain of those doctrines. So for now, I said I'm comfortable um, where I'm at as far as Protestantism as a whole, because I feel like Catholicity can be better promoted within that spectrum of Protestantism. But uh, as far as what denomination within Protestantism, that is a bit of a problem for me now because obviously I can't stay Southern Baptist because I just disagree with almost everything the Southern Baptist uh, Convention teaches. On the other hand, um, it's hard to find a denomination where I feel like it would be welcome. I've looked at Anglicanism. It seems like a good in-between, right, between Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy and between my upbringing. But right now, the Anglican denomination is going through some troubles of its own. And so I've been in some contact with some Anglican folks just discussing these issues and others. And so I say uh, probably Anglicanism is where I'm moving towards in the future, but um, a lot of it has to do with job security, to be honest. Yeah, I hear you. Like as a minister, where would you find yourself um, after having basically sabotaged your whole career? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, I mean, you know, it is what it is. Uh, And ultimately you should go where you really feel led to be. And you know, I've been thinking a lot about this myself because like, you know, universalism, Christian universalism isn't a denomination, right? It's like, it's not even Christianity entirely. You know what I mean? It's 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 a philosophy within Christianity and without Christianity, you know? So it's one of those things where if you find yourself to be a Christian universalist, uh, it doesn't really have much to do with a denomination per se, but like, uh, and you'll find universalists in every denomination, which is really fascinating. Um, no, uh, no, yeah, I mean, not, one of the maybe things, not in Calvinists, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, one of the things I try to do in my book, for example, is I'm not trying to make, um, let's say, an Arminian into a Calvinist or Calvinist into Arminian in the book. I'm trying to say is you can be an Arminian and be a universalist. You can be a Calvinist and be a universalist. You can be an open theist even and be a universalist. And so likewise, I say it's the same thing denominationally, I would hope in the future that you can be an Eastern Orthodox and be some type of universalist, you can be a Catholic and be a Balthazarian or Renarian universalist, right? Um, So yeah, universalism isn't a denomination. And I'm very aware of those who want to make a denomination. I have met individuals like that who say, we need to make a universalist denomination. Like, well, why not work within the denomination you are in now, right? And those individuals who I'm very doubtful that they would leave that to your new denomination and maybe try to adjust some of the parameters, right? As like the Anglican community has done, or as it seems like uh, the Catholic community, I like to say they're making it harder and harder for anybody to wind up in hell after Vatican II. 
So why not do that? Well, that's the approach that I take is I'd rather go to a denomination that I welcome in and that's not made up of 50 people you know, meeting in someone's basement. Yeah, totally. Uh, I was going to ask you if you could like maybe give like a brief summary of some of the ideas in your book. Sure, sure. Um, well, it's a 400 page book. So yeah, I mean, very you know. short. Sure. Um, so the title of the book is Once Loved, Always Loved, The Logic of Apocatastasis. And I love the title. I mean, I absolutely love it. So of course, it's a ripoff of one saved, always saved, right? Or um, there's actually a more nefarious saying, it's one shut, always shut. And this comes from the song, one door and only one, and yet its sides are two. I'm on the inside and which side are you? I remember as a child, never liked that song. Can't believe they had to sing it. Um, and so uh, this is a riff off that. And it's saying that uh, if you are an individual who is loved by God, right, you will always be an individual who is loved by God. So then what we need to ask ourselves is, well, what does it mean to be loved by God? And which individuals are loved by God? And so this really comes out in my chapter on Reformed theology, right? Because you will meet people like Arthur W. Pink, who says that um, when we say that God is sovereign in the exercise of his love, we mean that God chooses whom he shall love. God does not love everybody. <laughs> I remember reading that. I remember also reading, it might have been Louis Burkhoff who said that um, God no more intended that the gospel should reach the unevangelized, they should hear of it, than that grass should grow in the icy regions of Siberia. That was one of the most disgusting quotes I've ever read. Um, so you do have individuals out there who don't think that God loves everybody. Or you have other individuals out there who think that, well, God loves all in some ways and some in all ways. And I have responded to those individuals at length in different podcasts people can find on the Grace Saves All podcast and in my book. So I say the argument that I set forth primarily in my book is that we are all God's loved ones and God does the best for us that he can. And the best that he can do for us is omnipotence, as J.I. Packer would say. So that's the premise of the book. Then um, in the first chapter, I address concerns that people have about views of divine providence. So actually, I'm getting a little bit fed up with Dr. William Lane Craig's um, Molinism, uh, where he tries to come up with theories about how Molinism can be utilized while not leading towards universalism. And so one thing that Craig seems to be uh, denying is that there is no sufficiently populated feasible universalist world that God could weakly actualize. All right. How does he know that? Right. Well, because he's automatically assuming that this is not that world. Right. That is his assumption is this is not that world. Well, the only way he could know that is if he denied postmortem repentance, right? It's clear in his writings that that is what is at stake. He's denying postmortem repentance and then reasoning from that. But I believe in postmortem repentance. So the first chapter is, um, is responding to people like William Lane Craig or open theists like Greg Boyd and Richard Swinburne says, well, God doesn't infallibly know the future. So God doesn't know if all persons will eventually be saved. I respond to that. And in fact, Greg Boyd, uh, I told you that, Greg Boyd and I, we did a call, and Greg Boyd has done recent episodes um, since then, being interviewed on passages from like Revelation 19. And um, people like James Bielby and others have um, seemed to confirm what Greg Boyd told me that it seems that he has come out as a universalist after all this time, right? He, he, he was once a Bardian universalist, then he moved over to open theism and annihilationism, and now it seems like he's an open theist universalist. So, to those who say that open theism, uh, open theist can't embrace universalism, I just said, well, look at people like John Hick, you know, and uh, Gregory Boyd, and they certainly can. So that's the first chapter. That's the premise of the book. Um, that's some of the responses I have to Calvinism. Um, and I, the purpose of this book was basically to make an equivalent to 
um, Edward Fudge's The Fire That Consumes, right? So one of the unique things of this book that I think listeners will appreciate is that I, my challenge is go and look at universalist literature that's out there and see how many actually respond to conditionalism or annihilationism. They don't really. I mean, David Bentley Hart had a few paragraphs. Eric Raytan and John Cronin were probably the ones who responded the most. They ha had an article, several pages in their book. Um, you had Thomas Talbot, who he had a, a couple paragraphs. Robert Parry, was, it was very disappointing. He had an appendix and it was uh, he, he was asked the question, you know, why not annihilation? And he said, well, it's just because I'm convinced of universalism. I, I wasn't really satisfied with that answer. And uh, it does seem like annihilationism is on the rise as far as amongst evangelicals. I think that it will become the dominant view soon. That's what Preston Sprinkle thinks too. Um, but I don't find it convincing or appealing in the slightest. Uh, maybe that's because I have certain aversions to capital punishment as well. So I'm, I have aversions to metaphysical capital punishment. Um, so then maybe someone believes something like metaphysical suicide instead of metaphysical capital punishment. All those objections are objections that I answer in my chapter on conditional immortality, as well as the passages like Matthew 10, 28 or 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, the annihilationists would use. In fact, um, I remember corresponding with David Bentley Hart and some of these passages, trying to work out um, the right interpretation of these passages. And so I was very grateful to him for that. Uh, I talked to John Bayer about some of the patristics that uh, annihilationists pull from. So that's a very helpful conversation. So I'd say that this is going to be a treat. Uh, for those who've read Universal's literature and haven't seen responses to annihilationism, this is different. So that's gonna be cool. Another thing, um, I love writing the epilogue to this book. It was probably my favorite part was the epilogue to this book. Uh, in the epilogue to this book, I actually got to end this book with the words, the end, right? Um, because the point was, I wanted to play off of J.R.R. Tolkien's essay on fairy stories. We talked about the catastrophe, And one of his points is that in order to know the true story, we can look at you know, the fairy stories, the fairy stories have elements that point us to the true story, right? The gospel or the meta narrative of the Bible. And I thought, well, if that's true, one of the constant elements that keeps on seeping up in these children's stories that I'd read is they, they all lived happily ever after, right? It's a constant theme growing up as a child, you hear that. And I said, well, what if this is God's way, right? In these fairy stories, as Tolkien is saying, of pointing us to his story. And there's one uh, part in particular in Tolkien's work, it's in The Return of the King, where Samwise Gamgee asks Gandalf, he says, are all sad things coming untrue? I love that. Um, now, some traditionalists recently said, well, yes, um, all sad things are coming untrue because of the resurrection. That's simply false, all right? In and of itself, on a traditionalist view, the resurrection isn't enough to say that all sad things come untrue because you have persons who are resurrected in order to be tormented forever. Well, in their case, um, they, there's those sad things, that being these persons being separated from their loved ones from God and being tormented forever, does not come untrue. The same thing is true in annihilationism. It is only on universalism that all sad things do indeed come untrue. And this is where I go to Puddleglum from uh, Narnia. If you ever read the Narnia series in the Silver Chair. So, so Puddleglum and the children are being trapped by this witch in this uh, an underworld. And uh, the witch is trying to convince them that Narnia doesn't exist, right? I mean, the world is just really a bleak place after all. And, and Puddle Glum says, uh, more or less, you know, uh, if you say that this world that we've only made up, right, if that's all we've done, just we're acting like children, we just imagine this world of Narnia. Well, it seems to lick the real world, right? It seems far better than this world that you're telling us about. And so I'm going to stick by Narnia. I'm going to stick by the play world. Now, Puddle Glum is not saying, you know, stick your head in the sand. In fact, this is actually, as C.S. Lewis later uh, said in correspondence, an ontological argument. What Puddleglum is saying is that beauty is an indication of truth, right? That what is beautiful points us to what is true. And so the idea is, 
uh, that Narnia seems like a far more beautiful world than this world that the witch is telling them about. So that is proof that the witch is lying, that Narnia is the real world and the witch's world is a lie. So I apply that to universalism, where you imagine right, a possible world in which all persons are saved versus a possible world in which you know, some persons are annihilated versus some persons are destroyed uh, or tormented forever. And uh, as far as I can see, the universal world seems far more beautiful. And if beauty is an indication of truth, that's an indication that the non-universal world isn't the real world and that they're lying, right? So um, that is unique to my book. <laughs> I'm glad it came to me one afternoon sitting in the Princeton Library. I was like, holy crap, I can use this for my book when I was reading Narnia. Um, so that's unique. And one other thing I'll say is the introduction. Um, several things are pointing to the introduction. One, we need to watch our rhetoric. Right. I've had so many individuals who've been turned off to universalism because of the rhetoric of certain universalists. We'll just say, really, we're moral idiots. We're moral cretins for having this belief. Uh, a lot of people just don't have the time to research this. Right. So they trust these individuals who have proven themselves trustworthy in the past. Right. It's the principle of charity. And so I don't think that's helpful to say that also to repeatedly say whenever someone questions a certain universalist, well, you just didn't understand so and so. Well, if they have misunderstood so and so, Mr. So and so, why don't you explain what that so-and-so was attempting to say instead of just gaslighting somebody? Um, on the other hand, I am getting kind of like just fed up with the non-universalists too. They're acting like online atheists in the sense that uh, I'll come across online atheists who will say, there's no evidence for the existence of God. <laughs> and so, well, what does the theist do? Well, then he lays out abductive and inductive and deductive arguments for the existence of God. He, he does all that only to have the online atheists say, say right back to him, but that's no evidence for the existence of God. Well, I feel the same way with some non-universalists as I lay out inductive, deductive, abductive arguments for universalism. And they'll say, well, that's no evidence for universalism, right? Or uh, what they'll do is they'll constantly raise objections to universalism without stopping to examine their own view and asking themselves, are there weightier and more objections to my own view than there are to the other view, right? So I think that we need to use the principle of charity. I think we need to be more charitable in our conversations. And, and that's something that I bring out in the very introduction of my book. So I hope that it sets the tone for the rest of the book, even if I am a bit passionate at times <laughs> throughout the material. So yeah, so those are the some, uh, I guess you could say, unique things that my book offers that others don't. That's awesome. I like that you went in that more witty, uh, you know, literary direction of, because you know, what's, I think like there's something so powerful powerful about stories, right? And that's why we love movies. We love reading books. I mean, I don't like reading books very often, but <laughs> but movies, you know, stories, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, you know, much too many evangelical chagrin back in the 20 years ago. But um, <laughs> but even Harry Potter, you know, the stories, um, they they draw us in and 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 ultimately if it appears that God, I mean, if we're creating God's image and we love stories, how much more does God love stories, you know, and being swept up in the narrative of it is, it, uh, it just makes things so it transcendent. It's, um, it makes things so much bigger than, than they are, than just the mundane. And it makes every moment also matter, you know, I think that's like something that's really powerful for me uh, when it comes to universalism is like, what happens to the love that everyone shares, you know, everyone I don't know if there's anybody out there that doesn't experience or share some sort of love. What happens to that love? Does it just, does it mean nothing? You know, um, every little moment matters, you know, 
but yeah, so that's really that's really awesome. I, I look forward to reading that. And then um, tell me about what were you saying about promotional opportunities? Sure. So um, I'm supposed to be on the OnScript podcast, hopefully in the next couple of weeks to come a month. For those who know it, um, hopefully uh, Chris Tilling will be the one hosting me. So I'm very that's much a big deal. To that. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I'm very excited for that. Um, I have several other interviews lined up. I just did one yesterday with Adherent Apologetics on YouTube that people can check out. Should be out June 10th, I think. I constantly get asked if I'll do debates <laughs> and um, um, several things on that. So first of all, I don't find debates very helpful. Right? As an academic, I don't go to debates for my information because usually it comes down to who's more witty than the other person. It comes down to people over talking each other. Right? I just don't find them that helpful. They can be entertaining, but not really on a subject like, <laughs> like this where there's so much at stake. Uh, that being said, I have done a debate in the past with Gene Spiegel, who's a conditionalist and uh, he's a very nice individual. Um, so I might be open to debates in the future on a channel like Capturing Christianity, where I've appeared in the past, just with the right individual. So I wish people would stop asking me about Christie and James Rooney, because I don't consider those the right individuals to debate, although they are fine individuals outside of a debate context. So, um, but I should be appearing again, hopefully on the Capturing Christianity channel. Another one that's pretty exciting is uh, Sean McDowell. I've been in touch with him. I sent out a copy to him. He was interested in my work. So depending on um, if he thinks that this is substance that he would like to talk about on this channel, then um, we should get something going then there something sometime soon. Randall Rouser, uh, the tentative apologist. Um, he's someone who's having me on, I think it's June 27th, we're recording. Not sure when it's gonna come out. Um, Jake Marlowe uh, or Morlau is another individual who I know I have an episode scheduled sometime soon. So yeah, a bunch of different episodes that people can catch up with and look at. And I just hope that um, other people, again, will profit from this hard work of blood, sweat, and tears. <laughs> and if you're lucky, you'll get on the fellow traveler. That's right. Yeah. If, if I'm lucky, if you're lucky, you should put it in a good word. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I think I know. I think I know the guy that runs it. Um, I'm I really, you know what, I'm really fascinated by if I'm really fascinated if like someone like Elisa Childers or mm -hmm. some of those people who are kind of like I don't want to be derogative, but yes, but like watchdoggy, you know, kind of theologians and pundits these days who are all about like the boogeyman is as um is progressive Christianity. But I think what's really fascinating about you is that you're not necessarily a progressive christian i mean you're you're obviously seeking and you're asking questions and you're getting into some of those deep those uh hairy topics like sexuality and stuff i've seen i see you're cool um if you follow andrew on instagram he shares these little uh screenshots of his notes <laughs> he's just like these are the thoughts i'm having right now Here, read it read it if you want to um but yeah, it would be really fascinating to see, like, from the perspective of, like, people who are very anti, because universalists often get lumped into, oh, if you're a universalist, then you're a progressive Christian. It's like, well, actually, no, there's a lot of tradition, people who are very orthodox, like lower, lower, lower case O orthodox folks who are, um, who believe in universal salvation or some iteration of it, you know, or even hopeful so uh, universalism. So it'd be really fascinating if you could get in contact with someone like that. No, yeah, it's, um, it's funny you should say that because that's the thing I'm hoping for is because usually 
think one of the reasons why some conservative Christians are afraid of universalism is because of the slippery slope fallacy. I think Michael McClymond is one such individual as, hey, once you embrace this, you'll no longer be Trinitarian. Or you won't believe in the hypostatic union or the incarnation anymore. Um, you'll deny the authority of scripture, right? And I think people buy into that. I mean, I've watched some of these episodes on YouTube. I think it's Melissa Dougherty is uh, one individual who she equated universal with pluralism, right? I'm like, well, okay, that worked for John Hick, but I'm not a pluralist, right? Like by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, I said, I think there's one review on Amazon that points it right out in my introduction where I basically uh, quote Paul Young and say, many paths don't lead anywhere. <laughs> I'm not a universal, uh, I'm not a pluralist. Um, so I wish that people would stop equating online with pluralism and universalism. So that's why I find it unhelpful to use the term universalism. Um, that's why on my cover, I say the logic of apocatastasis, right? Because, um, you know, it's a friendly cover looking. Um, and so I think that if I said universalist, people wouldn't care how friendly the cover is. They say, I just don't like that word. Right. So um, I try to stray away from that. Now, as far as finding conservative um, goes, I think what helps for me is that I graduated from Liberty University, which is, I mean, like the Harvard of conservative evangelicals, right, next to Dallas Theological Seminary. And uh, I graduated with four minors, right? So I was a hardworking student at Liberty University. I was in good standing with the, the professors, the faculty, I mean, the Falwell family, um, people on the board of trustees, right? I was kind of a well-known person when I was there on campus. And uh, the cool thing is that students uh, who I knew there and students who are going attending there now and, and graduates even before I was there, because I was student at Liberty, they felt like I was somebody they could trust because I had a similar experience, right? I've been to the same campus, same professors. And so they were more open to hearing my views that they looked at maybe a more progressive universalist, right? So I get messages from faculty and from students from Wheaton and from Liberty all the time, right? People from conservative background. And because they say, hey, this is a conservative individual who holds this view. So maybe I don't have to become progressive in my politics or in other aspects of my theology in order to hold this view. Um, so yeah, I think it's the slippery slope fallacy. I don't buy it in the slightest, right, from people my climate. I have reached out to Concerta. It seems like uh, we might get something going with Sean McDowell. If so, um, my family members love Sean McDowell, right, because we grew up reading Josh McDowell. And well, I don't agree with a lot of what Josh McDowell said back in the day, still have great respect for Sean and Josh, right, the work they've done. I have reached out to Alyssa Childers along with, I can't tell you how many universalists I know. She hasn't reached back to any of us, not even, we got your message. Right, so um, I don't know what to make of that. I, I, I sincerely don't know on that end. I have reached out to another professor at Biola University. Um, he did an episode on universalism on a well-known evangelical channel. And I thought, well, maybe he's open to discussing it. Well, when I, when I reached out, he said, uh, well, this isn't a topic that I'm currently interested in. So I was kind of confused because he just did an episode on it. So how could you not be interested in doing episodes, you know, talking somebody about this topic because you don't find the topic interesting and you did an episode on that topic the day before. I don't know. <laughs> Go figure. But, uh, but I hope that uh, I can find an individual to talk with. Mike Winger is an obvious one, right? Well-known conservative uh, individual. So he's on my list of people to talk to Cameron from Captain Christianity and say, hey, this is an individual who's conservative and I would like to talk to. So I'm just praying that um, the Lord will send my way some conservative evangelical that I can talk to about this. Yeah, that'll be fascinating to hear. And, you know, Sean McDowell's right in that, exactly in that category. So that's awesome that you're able to talk with him. And that'll be great exposure as well. He is quite the oh, audience. Yeah. Almost as many as the fellow traveler. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> um, so 
we're going to talk about some things that weren't in your book just mm -hmm. because we pretty went pretty in depth the last time and if anybody's interested in going back and you have a lot of patience and you want to put up with uh, Cal's rants then go and you can go back and listen to that episode we talked about um i mean the philosophical the theological i mean we didn't really get too much into like scripture and whatnot but it was mostly about the philosophy of universalism and we talked about um, universalism and open theism which is really fascinating i still don't understand open theism as much as i've tried to wrap my brain around it don't really get it but <laughs> but anyway um what else we also talked about postmortem repentance and then we got a lot into eschatology and uh, preterism which is a really fascinating topic because it seems like as soon as you start deconstructing um hell then you have to start deconstructing eschatology and understanding like what is the end of the world and and it's really fascinating as you look, as I've looked into it more and more, I come to realize um, a lot of like the greater traditions, like Orthodox, Catholic, Anglican, like any high church tradition, they're all like a millennial, which is fascinating because all the traditions I've grown up with are <laughs> pre-millennial dispensationalists. And then they just like, my, it was weird. The pastor I grew up with, he was obsessed with pre-millennial dispensationalism, but like Specifically, he believed in post-trib rapture. So meaning like the Christians who were going to live through the rap, rap live through the, the great tribulation and then be raptured away, which is just fascinating. But <laughs> I feel like that's a minority position within premillennial dispensationalism. But anyway, I digress. We, uh, I, I actually have here um, a book. It's uh, Bart Ehrman's latest book, Armageddon. So and this is obviously a topic that I'm very interested in. We talked about this and maybe that's another future book I've thought about just because of how harmful, right? The wrong teachings on eschatology. Oh, for be. sure. Like I've heard so many stories from individuals who say that um, when they couldn't find their parents, right? There was this fear, like yeah. they couldn't find their parents in their house, like Randall Rouser. They thought that their parents had been taken and they had been left behind. And I remember it was a real fear growing up. Are you going to be left behind? Oh, man. <laughs> so uh yeah i remember i remember because like you said i would post notes on instagram so one time um i decided to do the unforgivable thing and question pre um the pre-trib dispensational view of the rapture mm -hmm. and so i put it out there and um the response was actually very positive from so many individuals i had mm -hmm. one individual who said you know thank me uh thank you so much because i had grown up in this right and this was i thought this was the only way of reading this and it was really depressing and i had a lot of anxiety from it i mean Thank you so much. And so uh, I'll never forget that. I'll, I'll never mm. forget that. What I find is so in what I, I, you know, I support you in writing about that because what I find is really disheartening is a lot of people's theology or even concept of what the gospel is, is wrapped up in pre premillennial dispensationalism <laughs> and like what, and wrapped up in what role does America play in the end times or, <laughs> or whatever, or, or the state of Jerusalem or whatever, like, and it's harmful politically, but also it's like, mm. it's just a, it's a warping of the gospel. It's like the gospel is no longer good news. It's just this terrible story, <laughs> you know? And um, well, it, it's, yeah. it's, it's the admission that God fails in history, right? Like um, you have yeah. 
every political system has an eschatology, right? Like, mm-hmm. according like Marxists, they seek to win in history. The Nazis sought to win in history. And there's this confession from like dispensationalists that, well, God doesn't win in history, but don't worry, he wins in eternity. And it's, it's really weird. It's like, uh, that's why I really hope that the post-mill view is true. I really hope it. Um, I'm not convinced by it, but I, I certainly hope that of any other views, that's the one that I would want to be true. I don't hope at all for the post-mill uh, view, I mean, for the pre-mill view, uh, especially the dispensational version to be true at all. I think that, mm. first of all, I think that it's promoted very harmful politics across the globe. I mean, we Absolutely. can't, as, as, as like nations, try to come together and solve issues because God forbid that happen, then the Antichrist will take over. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think you actually posted about this a couple, I know this is a great tangent. but I did, yeah. But seeing how we're here, I think I remember you posting about this and I was, it struck a chord with me because I'm thinking the same thing. I'm like, Oh my goodness, you're right. Like this has such an effect on the way we view politics. Don't care about the climate because God's going to destroy it anyway. You know, don't care about world peace because God, we, if we stay divided, if we, if we start uniting, then that's going to, yeah, the antichrist is going to come and which, I mean, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole, but, where in this Bible does it say that the Antichrist is going to unite the whole world? You know what I mean? I, I think yeah, that's just like, yeah, yeah. those are some ideas that were imported, you know? There's um there's also this idea that um, Jesus, when it's really, really bad, that's when Jesus would come back. So there are actually individuals who advocate for it. We should let it get really, really bad because wow. then Jesus will come back. And I think there is no way that you could read the ethics of Jesus, right, in the Sermon on the Mount or the letters of Paul. And like that's exactly what we ought to do. Um, I also think that it's it's been very harmful on the Palestinian front. Oh, yeah. I've known individuals and families um, who they're descended from, or they were the ones who were kicked out of the land there. And I think it's it's despicable what happened, right? Uh, in many cases, to Palestinian families. I mean, we don't talk enough about the travesties yeah. that have occurred to them. And and to hear in classrooms like I did that we ought to side with Israel. And the question I always ask is, what is the basis for that? Like, I'm not saying that we shouldn't, but I want to know what the basis for that is. Well, yeah. because in Revelation, right, it's like, okay. <laughs> so. Well, the thing is, like, let's take Israel and Palestine out of it. Let's just say, I mean, it could be the same story as Russia and Ukraine. You know what I mean? Uh, basically, Israel, a lot of the Israeli government is doing like a military has been doing a military occupation of Palestinian land, kicking them off their land that they've been there for centuries, you know? So, so I don't know, it's, it's complicated, but um, or, um, that's a my, bad, big tangent. Yeah, like, like um, you had one final thing, I guess you could say that, because you brought yeah. up Russia. So you have yeah. folks by like people like Hal Lindsey and um, other folks who they, they mapped out exactly how it's going to go down, right? Like Russia is going to team up with these nations and it's like, well, it didn't come to pass. I yeah. mean, it, it didn't happen. Or um, you had uh, my favorite of this is you had um, uh, 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 1988, right, by Edgar Wiseman. And uh, this is no dummy. I believe that he worked for NASA. But um, Jesus didn't come back in 1988. So what did he do? Well, I kid you not. He published another book, 89 reasons why Jesus will return in 1989. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's uh. insane. Anyway, that's a tangent for another time. Uh, but we did get a lot into the biblical, biblical and scriptural support for preterism. Um, partial anyway, preterism, we should say. Partial preterism, yeah, but not full preterism. Although it is fascinating to think. 
<laughs> fascinating to think about. You know, oh man, here I go again. But I was just thinking, no, I won't go into it there. I won't get into it. But anyway, um, tell me about some, what are some things that you were like, really wanted to get into your book, but just, it just didn't work out. Yeah. Just for the no. fun of it. Um, so there were actually several hundred pages that did not make it into the book, right? Um, so I know that uh, one of the concerns that I had would, was that there would be certain individuals who would read this 400-page book and they say, oh, you didn't address such and such. And they, they ought to know that actually, originally, I did address just about every passage you could think of that touched this issue. But the problem is the book would be too massive, it would be too expensive for me to pay for, be too expensive for anybody to buy, right? And who was going to read it? Michael McClyman. Um, so I decided that I'm going to shelf this for a while and I'm going to take some time to think about future projects. And then it was when I became very passionate about a certain element that I had written in my book eventually and took out of that I said, you know, I ought to start writing about this. And so one of the subjects was that of the question of the unevangelized, because as I talk about in my introduction, that was the topic that eventually led uh, me to consider universalism. It was the fate of the unevangelized. Is it such that they're all doomed, right? Is it such that um, through natural revelation that they can uh, respond positively to God? Um, so the more and more I thought of inclusivism, though, the more and more I started narrowing the subject, and it became specifically that of the salvation of infants. And I was very curious what to make of that, because several years ago, when I was um, very much Reformed, uh, particularistic version of uh, Reformed theology, which believes that not all persons will be saved, right? I, um, I became agnostic about the fate of infants. I just didn't know what road to take. And so it was, it was very hard for me at that. On good conscience, I just couldn't say that infants would be saved. I couldn't say that they didn't. And that's a view that's very prominent amongst Reformed theologians. You'll find it today. They say, we leave them up to the, um, the grace and the justice of God. And then they'll quote from Genesis and they'll say, um, will, not the just, uh, will not the judge of all the earth do what is just, right? And just leave it at that, right? Pious humility is what they think it is. Um, I actually know of one Calvinist, uh, Chris Date, who's a popular annihilationist, who in one book, he forthrightly says that he's had two children who have died in infancy, right? Uh, I think, in, in fact, he might have their urns, and he says that he thinks that they're in hell, right? Uh, and so for some people, that's going to sound bizarre. Like, how could you think that these infants are in hell? But I, I hate could, to say, yeah, go uh, ahead. I was just curious, like, by uh, what, what's his rationale for that? Like, what, is there some sort of doctrine that states mm -hmm. that children who don't, don't profess faith, like, go to hell? Like, I don't get it. Sure. Um, can we um, bookmark that for now? Because that's something that I have listed in my notes. Oh, we'll sure, sure. Right. So um, so uh, I just want people to know that there are individuals uh, like that out there will come to the rationale uh, that leads them to that conclusion. And um, so then I started, when I started looking at Catholicism, I started looking at limbo, for example. And limbo has fallen out of favor, it seems, amongst many Catholics these days. But I think that there are elements that are recoverable for reasons that we shall get into. Um, I don't think that babies go to purgatory because I don't think that babies have anything that necessarily needs to be purged from them, right? I don't think they have any actual sins that they've committed. At the same time, uh, I think that it would, it depend, it's all dependent on how you view salvation. If you view salvation as coming to know God and entering into a relationship with him and by responding positively to him, then it doesn't seem like infants are capable of that at the point when they die, right? So there are ways of um, looking at that and answering uh, questions concerning that line of thought. And those are the um, sort of questions that I pick up and run with in my book. So I am of the persuasion that infants do 
go to something like limbo i don't um, i'm using geographic language although it's not necessarily a place right i think that they um, go to something like limbo in which they're given an opportunity to respond now what's interesting is i read a book by a reformed theologian called ronald nash it's called when a baby dies and ronald nash anticipates objections like this so ronald nash says that um some might uh, say that infants shall be saved premised on universalism so obviously some universalists so believe that eventually all infants will be saved, right? Uh, then Ronald, but Ronald Nash says that universalism is no good. Then he asks, well, what about postmodern repentance, right? Maybe you could uh, believe in postmodern repentance like James Beelby, but not be a universalist. But then he disregards uh, postmodern repentance, right? And it's in postmodern repentance that he addresses the issue of something like limbo, right, for the infants, it's a chance for the infants to respond positively to God's grace. And he derogatively calls it something like a Neverland, right? Which I found funny, um, but it still was derogatory towards a view that I hold. So it was really in reading Ronald Nash that I said, you know, I have to write a book about this just because I think that the answers that he gives in the book are very poor. It was also because of um, listening to James White when uh, James White, I think he debated John Sanders on the issue. I actually think that he did a better job than John Sanders in that debate. Maybe that's because he's just a good debater. And then I read John Sanders' book where he talks about infant salvation. I said, you know, there is no really great book, current book that's out there about infant salvation. Um, you don't have Adam Harwood, but not many people even know about that book. So I thought that what I'll do is I'm going to write a book called The Logic of Limbo, because it would kind of like Jerry Walls had his trilogy, right? Where the, uh, the logic of eternal damnation, the logic about eternal transformation, the logic of eternal bliss, it might've been the one about heaven. And so I have the logic of apocatastasis. So I thought, you know, I can write, uh, a sequel, and I'll call it The Logic of Limbo. So um, that's where I'm at right now. I'm in the researching uh, process. Thankfully, at Princeton, we have books that have, you know, you won't find anywhere else. Uh, so I'm able to pull from them in terms of my research. I've already done a lot of reading, and um, I'm just looking forward to sharing some of my thoughts with you today, Peter. Sounds awesome. That's cool. I had I had a question, and I'm sure you're going to probably going to address this, but I was just like thinking, you know, it just seems like such a weird topic. Um, not not that it's weird for you to bring it up because I think it's an important topic to discuss, but it's a weird topic for people to have kind of this question of like, how do babies get saved? Um, and, and I think what's weird about it is maybe it's like, you know, there's like different conceptions and interpretations of like original sin, you know what I mean? And maybe it's like, and maybe you can explain to me because I'm not like a theologian per se, but I'm just thinking like from a Augustinian or post-Augustinian view, um, you know, it's more like we're born bad, like even from an infancy, like we're born bad and deserving of hell, right? Um, but then like older traditions, like I feel like maybe Catholicism, it's probably like 50-50, but like Orthodox, they don't have that view that like we're born bad and and but more that like our, we're formed by our sin over our life you know and and so like the, there's that disposition there's a disposition that you kind of acquire over time like you become more acclimated to sin so much acclimated to sin that when you meet god it feels like hell you know and then and then um but on the reverse side through like theosis or sanctification you become so much like christ and so much united to god through the christian life you know the walk and the the, the latter divine ascent or whatever that 
when you meet God, it's like bliss because you've already been acclimating yourself to the presence of God. So for babies, what's fascinating about that is like, man, that's kind of unfair for them just to be born. Um, uh, if we if we really believe that they're they're just born bad, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah, they, it's very interesting. I wonder if you could kind of explain like what do you think is like the right way to understand that? So I think yeah, you're right. I can't overstate how important one's view of original sin is to this topic, right? So if you take the Augustinian view, for example, the Augustinian view implies something called inherited guilt, which is that um, the descendants of Adam are guilty for what Adam has done, right? So um, he's basically the representative. There are different ways of arriving at that conclusion, right? Some say it's because he's, um, he is the direct physical descendant. Others say it's well, because God appointed him as humanity descendant. In either case, the children are automatically guilty for what Adam has done. And so um, on that view, it makes a lot of sense, actually. It's, well, if, if they're just as guilty as Adam is for what he has done, and they die in that state of guilt, and you can only be saved, as many evangelicals think, by a decision of faith, well, the infants haven't made that decision of faith. They've died guilty, therefore they go to hell. Um, and so the logic of that is it's pretty much makes sense. So what are ways around that? Well, Reformed tradition actually has uh, different ways of addressing this. There's that of federal headship and covenant theology, in which you have people like Erwich Zwingli, who say that, well, I think that these are the children of the covenant, um, at least are covered, right? Some even say every all children, but if we're just going by covenant theology, say the children of the covenant are covered. They'll go to passages like 1 Corinthians 7, 14, and say that you know, the children are holy, the children of uh, Christian parents. And so that's one way of addressing it is through covenant theology. Uh, another way is through the doctrine of election, where um, is Calvinists who will say that, well, God doesn't need, perhaps he doesn't need a um, faith decision in order to confirm someone's salvation, because um, ultimately we believe that election is that of grace and that salvation is that of grace. Therefore, no such decision is actually required. You'll have someone like uh, Wayne Grudem, for example, who postulates this by setting forth someone like John the Baptist to uh, According to Luke 1.15, like John the Baptist, when he was born, he was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was ever born, right? Um, and, that's, and that's an amazing steam. So they'll use John the Baptist saying, well, maybe it's like that for these infants. So um, you'll have someone like Zwingli who will say that the death of an infant is a sign of its election, right? So when we see an infant die, we say that's a sign that God has elected that infant. Yet you will have other people in the Reformed tradition who will look at the death of an infant and say that's a sign of that child's reprobation. Because if God had wanted that child to be saved, he would have uh, brought the child through the ordo salutis, right? He would have made sure that the child came to a decision of faith. Since he did not do that, therefore he's damned. But then this leads to the question, of course, that um, there are some who say, well, maybe infants can have faith. Maybe they can uh, demonstrate an act of faith. To some, this, is, this may be really weird, right? They say, well, where's the proof of this? Well, in the Gospel of John, we have this story of a man born blind. I think it's John 5, 29, maybe. Uh, there's the man born blind, and the disciples ask Jesus, you know, is he born blind because of his sin or his parents? Now, because these are Jews, right, many people say we have to leave aside the question of reincarnation, right? As far as Second Temple Judaism and the transmigration of souls, uh, they say it's very sketchy to believe that first century Palestinian Jews would believe in something like reincarnation. Um, so that leaves the other um, option, which is that the infant or this um, individual who is no longer an infant but as an infant committed a sin, so that he had a capability as an infant to commit a sin. So um, some would argue that that is an option that's on the table in the case of the man who was born blind. Um, of course, Jesus never actually 
agrees with that. Jesus says that it was this was happened in order to that God's glory could be made known, right? So uh, I am very aware of using that as a proof text. But so those are some different options. You have the doctrine of election, which says that God can just simply elect infants. And there are some like B.B. Warfield that said that God elects all infants, right? There's some who say God elects just the infants of believers. There's some who say that it's covenant theology that's the answer. There's some who say, actually, if they die, that's a sign of a reprobation, right? So that's within Reformed theology. There are many very different answers. I think perhaps the most probable one is that you see in Ronald Nash and Al Mohler, where they'll say, well, the infant, or even R.C. Sproul, they'll say, well, the infant uh, has original sin, but the infant has, does not yet have personal sin or actual sin, right? Because the infant doesn't yet have uh, a sense of morality, of good and evil. The point of passages like Deuteronomy 139, let's say, see, this is an example where God allows these children into the promised land, although their parents have sinned, because they didn't know good from evil. Therefore, if we're going to be judged according to our works, as you'll see in passages uh, in Revelation and 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 and Romans 1, well, what works do these infants have, morally speaking, right? And so therefore, they're all in. Um, so those are all different interesting uh, ways. And I think that the Reformed tradition, as far as it um, utilizes the doctrine of election, actually might have a step up on the Western Arminian tradition. And that's because uh, the Western Armenian tradition, in their view of free will, right, they put, place a lot of emphasis on libertarian freedom. Like, there has to be that option available to say yes to God. But in the case of all infants who die, did they have that option available, right? Did they have the option available to say, no, I don't want to be in heaven? Well, that's a good question, right? It's a very good question. So we'll come back to that. But I want to um, first see if you have any questions before I move to the Roman Catholic view on this. No, I mean, that's really in depth. I like how you're kind of going part piece by piece and thinking like, you know, how does, it's it's amazing how diverse the thought is throughout Christianity. And I, and I often wonder like, um, you know, which, which view should we give priority based off of like their closeness in a, like, and this comes to like the question of like authority too. I mean, I, I, and I guess you can answer this as we go along. Like, um, what what gives any one view authority? You know, <laughs> other than just like, I agree with it. You know what I mean? That's what's kind of fascinating about the whole discussion. Because and and when we discuss like different denominations or different strains of Christianity, like, um, I, that's just something I've been thinking about lately in general. Like, where does authority come from when it comes to deciding, like, um, which which uh, which view is true? And this is such a fascinating um, discussion. But yeah, continue on. No, sure. And so on, on that note, speaking of authority, I can't help but speak of the Roman Catholic Church, right? So um, there you go. Yes. Yeah, so um, it is debated. Right. It is debated about um, the state of infants at death in the Roman Catholic tradition. Uh, for a while, it, limbo seemed like the proper response. So many people ask, well, what is limbo? Uh, is limbo a place? Is limbo a state of being? Right. Well, in limbo, uh, there have been different views, but it seems like the predominant view of limbo now is that in limbo, these children, these unbaptized infants experience perfect natural bliss. All right. So. They're not experiencing supernatural bliss, such as the Catholic tradition thinks the saints are um, in perceiving the beatific vision, but they are having perfect natural bliss, which means they're not experiencing torment, right, as those are in hell. So the name limbo uh, means fringe, 
And so it's on the fringe of hell. I don't like that. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't get why it's not on the fringe of heaven. Why is it going to be on the fringe of hell? Um, and so some people see this as a, a way of answering the problem. They say, well, the infants aren't damned, right? And they aren't necessarily saved because they don't need saving. So they're in limbo. And when people ask, well, why aren't they in heaven? They say, well, they don't deserve heaven, right? And they don't deserve hell. So there's this middle ground. Now, <laughs> I actually find this view uh, very bizarre and unsatisfying because if God wills for all persons, right, to be in proper relationship with him, then I would see proper relationship as more akin to what the saints experience in heaven than what unbaptized infants experience in limbo. It's a very strange thing, right? If God truly desires for these individuals to be in relationship with him, then why doesn't he continue to supply sufficient grace to make that possible, right? So that infants will eventually come to experience the beatific vision. What, what possible reasons does he have for holding it back? Well, maybe someone might appeal to skeptical deism and saying, oh, you know, we just um, epistemically don't have access to God's reasons. I don't buy it because uh, I think that relational and personal goods are of the highest sort of goods. And so all other goods are in service to those sort of goods. Like um, we see in somebody like John Piper, who says that uh, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, right? We have that hint of relational and personal goods. So don't buy the skeptical VS route. Um, in fact, it's quite odd. If you had a Molinist perspective, you could say, well, God knew that this individual, this unbaptized infant, would eventually come to be in a salvific relationship if it continued to grow, right? And so if God knows that, why on earth would he not continue to supply sufficient grace to this infant? Seems very odd to me. We also have to think of the parents, right? Uh, there's, a question of, um, there's a question of heavenly grief when it comes to the doctrine of hell. But I've never really heard much of this about the question of heavenly grief when it comes to those in limbo. Some might say, well, this is because they're not in torment. Yeah, but they're still separated from their parents, right? And heaven is not as good as it could be in the case that um, it would be better if my child was present with me. And so there's a the question about, well, how do the saints perceive you know, their children uh, being in limbo? And especially if they're filled with perfect love and they want individuals to come to know their Lord and Savior as they do, then why wouldn't they will the beatific, beatific vision for the children? Um, so these are, these are objections that I see as very convincing against the Catholic view of uh, limbo as a permanent state, right, for unbaptized infants. Um, and I'm not alone. There are many uh, Roman Catholics today who also think that it is not sufficient to just believe in the doctrine of limbo as a permanent state, and that perhaps we need to say that all infants do, in fact, go to heaven. That's fascinating. You know, I, I was thinking about, um, I don't know if I've talked to you about this before, but, um, you know, the whole concept that our identity and who we are is, mo is largely formed by our experiences, right? And, and I'd imagine that in heaven or in hell, we will have memory, right, of who we are and what we've experienced to some degree. And I don't know what level that's going to affect us either way, you know. But what's fascinating with infant, infants dying is that they have no memory, right? They have no experiences. They haven't formed an identity. So it's like, I know this is kind of like tangential, but I just fascinating while I have you uh, to think about, because I think it does factor into like the experience of the dead infant. Like um, what is what exactly are they experiencing if 
um they've never experienced anything else you know what i mean especially if like say they died in the womb say it was like an aborted child or or they died like as an infant without having had any experience you know um who are they you know uh does god re resurrect them or reanimate them as who they would have been you know that's what's really fascinating too or or is there some level of growth within heaven you know or within the afterlife that's really fascinating no yeah it's um so you brought the topic of abortion and so there are some catholics who see an aborted infant uh for example as undergoing the baptism of blood right um well i don't think that works in this case because they're obvious they're not dying for their faith in jesus christ right that this is not an act of martyrdom so i don't think the baptism of blood works some have said well perhaps there's the baptism of desire right like the church uh, would have baptized this infant if you know everything all the conditions had taken place right and so we can um, see this infant as uh, partaking in the baptism of desire there's a, also a, another view and that is one that i know richard swinburne has um, set forth i don't know necessarily know if that's what he believes but he says that it is possible that there are certain uh, aborted fetuses that are not really persons right they're not persons and so there's nothing left uh in their case there's nothing left for god to um, do with them in the case of soul making so they just cease to exist um for so many individuals this is going to be a, a morbid view right they will not hold that view it reminds me of in the psalms where david says since my mother bore me, you have been my God, right? Psalm 22, 10. I think there would be certain Christians who would read verses like that and they say, you know, I, I, I can't really buy into what Richard Swinburne is proposing, right? And I personally think that what Richard Swinburne is proposing is disgusting in that case, uh, just being frank. Um, so those are some different ways of looking uh, at infants in respect of persons, right? Do they undergo the baptism of blood? Are they just cease to exist in the case of Richard Swinburne? And um, you're right, these infants, I mean, what are their memories exactly is, is a great question. And that's why I think something like limbo as a, not a permanent state, but as a you know, temporary state is needed, right? Because um, what exactly do they know of God is a question. Like you, you hear atheists say that uh, babies are born atheists. That's, that's a really weird thing. I mean, babies aren't born believing in gravity either, right? <laughs> so it's like, okay. So I think that babies, if it is that salvation means coming to know God, right? That's what's uh, part of salvation is coming to know God and wanting to be in relationship with God. Then it's obvious, it seems to me, that when an infant dies, an infant doesn't have that ability. So if that's what salvation is, I would think that infant needs to be given that ability. So they don't go to purgatory, because purgatory is for saints. They don't go to hell because they haven't committed any sins that are necessary for them to be damned. So they go to some place like limbo. With limbo, they do come to have those memories, right? They now come to acquire them through um, certain actions that they perform, and they are given the ability to respond positively um, should they do so. Now, um, I, I usually get the question, though, from certain individuals, this, are you saying that there's the chance that they might not respond positively, right? So let's say, what hope can you give to a grieving parent? Can you tell that grieving parent, right, that your child is in heaven? Or can you tell them there is the... <laughs> There's the chance that they're in heaven, but they might choose against God, right? Well, one thing I'd say is, um, as a Christian, sometimes some of the beliefs that we have are going to be uncomfortable, right? And uh, like you asked about authority, I just don't have the authority to change. Like if I believe in sola scriptura, for example, I don't have the authority to change scripture just because I don't like what it says. If I'm a Catholic, I don't have the authority to change what the magisterium has infallibly dictated just because 
I feel like I disagree with it. And so if it is the case that something like limbo exists and the child can respond negatively to God, then it's true. I can't tell that parent that right now their child is in heaven, right? And this is a short thing. Um, but as a universalist, I can tell them that eventually they will see their child in heaven, right? I can promise that. So that's how I respond to someone like Ronald Nash is that as a universalist, well, I cannot say um, in the present that their child is enjoying the BTEC vision. I can say that in the future they will. So I think for me that seems to work out. Um, but yeah, I'm curious what your thoughts are. It is really fascinating to think about. And, and I think we kind of touched on this a little bit last time, especially because Kelly and I both work with children with disabilities, like people with autism. It kind of brings up the same question as well. Like, well, like if someone um, can't, if salvation is dependent upon, you know, profession of faith, I suppose like, a child with autism can profess faith in some way, shape, or form, you know, or, or God is just going to find them in, in his own way, you know, he's going to speak to them, reach them in their own way, which is really fascinating. I mean, as a personal antidote, there was uh, one, this, he wasn't a kid, really, he was older than me at the time, but um, this one child, he, he had this single mother um, at a couple of churches that I went to, and she would bring him. He was not ambulatory, so he couldn't walk. And but one thing that was really amazing to see is during worship, she'd sit him like up in the front on the floor, and he would sit on the floor with his like legs out and just sway back and forth, singing, trying to sing along, praising, you know. So I mean, who knows? It's fascinating what to ask yourself, like what level of faith can a child or even a person with disabilities have and then and then what and then um you know if it, it gets back to like there's a lot of deeper questions too other questions like um is salvation dependent upon just intellectual assent you know what i mean and i think that's oftentimes what a lot of protestants mean by faith whereas like i think it's more holistic than that it's also like what did you do to love one another? You know, <laughs> you know, I mean, in the words of St. James, uh, faith without works is dead. In other words, like if you profess to know God, but then don't do what it commands, then, um, you know, there, there's a lot of other aspects to it that are a lot, uh, I don't know, a lot to um, a lot of factors involved, but it is fascinating discussion. No. Yeah. I think, um, think one's view of justification really affects how they should answer this question. So for example, I think that infants are morally immature, or I just the word immature is better, is that they don't have any knowledge of good and evil. So they're not like the saints in heaven, right? They're not like the saints who they are now uh, perfect in the sense that they're not able to sin, right? They're impeccable in that sense. Um, so something I think has to happen in between. Obviously, we all think that, right? Obviously, in between, we think that God does something. Well, I think that if salvation is, like I said before, it's coming to respond positively um, to the God who made us, right? Um, and I think that it's a process. And so I think that infants have to go through that process. So they have to go through that immaturity when they don't know good and evil to the point where they now know good and evil and they grow towards perfection. Um, so, yeah, so I, uh, again, 
I don't think that they're damned to hell. I think that why people believe that is because of how the, they see the doctrine of original sin, which touches on this. The point of passages like Psalm 51.5 and Ephesians 2.3, which will say, you know, they were talking about children of wrath, um, talking about King David, for example. It's always really strange to me why they would point to something in the Psalms, right, uh, to settle this issue, because uh, David also says, against you only have I sinned. Okay, that's hyperbole right there, because that's not true. Did he, did he sin against Uriah? <laughs> I would think so. Uh, so David um, often uses hyperbole to stress how awful he really is. And so it could be that that's what he's doing here. I'm so bad, you know, it goes all the way back to my birth, right? That could be what's going on here. It could be saying that he was conceived in iniquity, right? Means that, well, his, um, those who bore him did something wrong. So it's not him. It's they did some sort of act, whatever it may be. So there's multiple ways of reading the text. So it's always really odd to me when people bank on this. Like I asked one Calvinist once about if you have infants and he thought they went to hell and he quoted that verse to me. <laughs> very strange to me why that verse would come to mind and uh ephesians 2 3 i think doesn't work for similar reasons i think that i would be like david bentley hart for example would point to this passage as like you see in the gospel of mark when jesus says permit the little children to come to me right um someone could respond to that like john center and say well the children that jesus is talking about are israelites right so they're children that are part of the covenant again this goes back to covenant theology and so um, it, Jesus is just saying that those who are in the covenant are protected. He's not talking about all persons. Uh, Jehoiakim Jeremiah is another one who sees um, this passage in particular as an example of infant baptism. Um, he looks at language of permit and he says, well, that we can see in other literature, like in the book of Acts, that um, this is talking about baptism. But there are other scholars who aren't convinced, like Alan. I've done a worse study. I think um, he found 28 different references in the gospel that Jeremiah has pointed to in which uh, they're, uh, let me see, I've had right here. He says that the verb is used 23 times in the New Testament and rarely refers to baptism. So there's some who just disagree with Jeremiah on how to take these passages. Um, but I think it is really interesting that Jesus says that, that the kingdom of heaven is for such as these, right? As, as children. And so I have a very, I, I just absolutely disagree that Jesus could say something like that. And then you know, he believes that these, children, uh, these infants, that they are in hell, right? So, so the only way around that will be to do a word study and show, well, is Jesus talking about a newborn or is she just talking about an adolescent, right? That would be the only way around it, because if Jesus is talking about a, um, an adolescent, I could kind of see where um, they could make an argument like that, but if Jesus is talking about a, a newborn, someone who is morally immature, doesn't know right from wrong, I think it's disgusting to hold the belief that they are damned to hell forever, or even temporarily mm. damned to hell. Yeah. I was also thinking about, you know, speaking of Jesus, uh, the parable of the talents, right, is which is like to those little is given, little is expected to those much is given, more is expected. Right. So it's like to those who have had the privilege of living life, you know, even a full life, you know, and have been given all the privileges and resources and opportunities to serve God and and live out their faith, you know, in, in meaningful ways that, you know, the master, when he returns, he's expecting that you've, you've made some, um, that you've made, that you've done well on your investing your, what you've been given, you know? So for children or even an infant, um, they can only be judged on based off the little bit they've been given, which is essentially nothing. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just that. No, you're right. Like, um, I think Romans 1 is an interesting passage in particular. It's talking about people who suppress the truth and run righteousness, right? Um, it talks about the action they've done, and it lists a bunch of actions. Well, obviously, an infant hasn't done those actions, right? Like, 
are we saying that like the infant is suppressing the the truth of god right I mean, does an infant know can an infant define for you god as that being that which none greater is conceived right i mean seriously uh, is that what we're advocating for so i think you're absolutely right as far as what the infant has been given yet it is it seems to be very little especially when we're talking about uh, moral awareness um, so yeah, I find it very problematic to say that the infant, as some would say, is able to commit sin based on a weird reading of John five, even when Jesus disagrees with that reading of John five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the way the way I understand, you know, what's often understood as original sin, and I mean, I'm sure there's more nuance or there's more systematic ways of thinking about it, but the way I always understand it is like because of adam and eve we've we've inherited death right and the wages of sin are death Mm. and this this begs in a whole nother question that we that i i've actually been really thinking about for the past several months is the whole idea of like payment you know um the wages of sin are death and and, in other words what is what is owed by sin is death um and i don't know if paul means like individual sins or does he mean just sin as as its nature in us you know what i mean and and if he means just sin as its nature in us like just what's what we've inherited is death and then but that depends that begs the question if we all die then do is it not paid for you know what i mean (laughs) if if the wages if what's owed if if death is what is owed by sin then when we all die doesn't that like uh, doesn't that don't we receive our just reward you know our just recompense Oh, yeah. Um, Great question. And that's actually something that I address in my book when it comes to annihilationists, for example. So um, if you've ever read annihilationist literature or looked at it, they'll often define death as being disembodied and not breathing, right? So to be alive is to be embodied and breathing. So to be dead is to be disembodied and not breathing. Well, if that is what it means to be dead, if the wage of the sin is death, then the day, so then when people die and they die in a state of, um, non-salvation right and they're damned so they've now died right it seems like they've paid for their sin so let me get this straight so they paid for it but god's going to raise them up you know put them back in bodies and then make sure that they become disembodied not breathing all over again that seems to me like double jeopardy right uh that seems enormously unfair so there are ways that annihilation is trying to get out of it absolutely unconvincing right um so it's, a, it's interesting that you brought that up because uh, that's, I'm one of the few universalists who points that out and say, I think it's entirely unfair. Um, it's interesting to your question about sin. Uh, there is a large debate now about what exactly does Paul mean by sin, right? Um, so you have people like Douglas Campbell, who I would put into the realm of cosmological apocalypticism, which they see as like sin is a power um, that we are enslaved to, right? Uh, and you do see this sort of theme kind of more prevalent in Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, this view of sin than you do in something like um, Catholicism because of the influence of individuals like Augustine and Aquinas is seen to be a different way of viewing sin. Um, and so uh, atonement theories definitely play into this. Like something that I think about is um, if you're going to equate death with annihilation, this is very weird as individuals like Robert Peterson have pointed out and uh, Edward Fudge and Sean Bowalski. Well, what does it say about the atonement in the case of Christ? So are, are we saying that if what I deserve is to be annihilated, right? And Christ is my substitute, according to penal substitutionary atonement theory. So doesn't Christ have to be annihilated, right? And so does the Trinity, is it reduced to ability or um, is the hypostatic union broken apart, unlike what the creeds tell us, right? So 
raises all these questions. And so then someone said, well, you know, in the case of Christ, though, he was actually innocent. So then God like keeps his soul in limbo for a time until the resurrection. If that's the case, though, then Jesus never actually took on the punishment that was mine, right? Because the punishment that's mine is more than just being, you know, preserved in limbo for a bit. It's absolute annihilation. And according to Hebrews, it says that um, part of Jesus coming to sympathize with us and our weakness was him enduring death, right? Tasting death um, in the way that we do. So um, it's very critical that we think about that it, when we read passages that talk about the wages of sin and death, we say, okay, what does this mean by death? I think it clearly does not mean annihilation because Jesus was not annihilated, right? That should be it. End of story for annihilationism right then and there. I also don't think it means eternal damnation. Jesus wasn't eternally damned, right? Um, no matter how people try to spin it. So I think that you're on the right step there. One other thing I'd add is it's interesting you bring up this passage because the wages of sin is death and infants die. And so there are reformed people like John Murray says, this is proof of the fact that they are guilty of sin, right? Otherwise, they would not die, right? It is, I think, a very interesting uh, objection, but then we might have to debate the difference between consequences and punishment, right? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Well you, well, you could say that they die because they've inherited the Adam's nature, not because they're guilty. You know what I mean? And I think, and I think that's what I'm getting at. It's like um, the way I understand original sin or whatever that is, maybe it's not original sin. At least I don't, I don't really understand the Augustinian way that like we've inherited their guilt but that we've inherited the sin nature, which is dying. It's going to die. You know what I mean? It's just inevitable. Yeah, um, I mean, there'll be some who say, well, the Augustinian view is all banking off of Augustine's misreading of Romans 5 because he was reading the Latin and, and the Latin, you know, had a um, textual variant and, oh, he's the big bad one. I don't actually think that's true. Um, in many cases, when we reform theologians who hold the Augustinian view, they, they never actually seem to bank on Romans 5, right? They'll be pulling from Psalm 51.5 and Ephesians 2.3. So there's there's a lot more to it than that. But I, I think you're right in that as far as like my understanding of original sin, um, I do not hold an Augustinian view in the slightest. Uh, what's interesting is that um, infant salvation, people don't know this, but infant salvation had a lot to do with Augustine's belief in predestination, right? So this is how it goes. Is Augustine wondered, why does the church baptize infants, right? Why, why do we do that? Right? Baptism, it remits all previous sins, right? So, but what sins does the infant have, right? So then Augustine thought, well, you know, they're guilty for what Adam did. So we're removing the, the guilt that they've inherited from Adam. Well, what does that say about those who haven't been baptized? Well, they're damned, right? Because the guilt wasn't removed. So not a lot of people know that, right? So that, how, that's how he arrived uh, at certain views of uh, his predestination. Um, so, right. Um, I would see the doctrine of original sin as more speaking to corruption than guilt, right, as a consequence. Um, I think this should be obvious to us that when we do certain things, right, they lead to consequences for those that we love in many cases. So this is why the doctor says, don't do certain things, right, when you're pregnant, because it can have consequences on your child, right? So it's, it's not a punishment for your child, like the child deserve this. It was a consequence of what you did. So I think that's the case with infants and for generations after Adam. Another problem with Augustinian view that I think is um, very great is, well, what if there was no historical Adam? Okay, that's a question that's being uh, very much addressed now in theological circles. If there was no historical Adam, 
what does this say to the Augustinian view of the doctrine of original sin, right? So if you think that, um, if you reject monogenesis, and you hold something like polygenesis, right, that there were many um, ancestors of uh, what were now homo sapiens, right, then it gets really weird if you hold the Augustinian view of original sin. Like, so, so do they all fall, right? Like, do they all fall and now they're intermingled? And how does that work with their descendants? So if you're a Peter Renz, if you're somebody who doesn't believe in a historical Adam, I think it's really weird if you hold to the Augustinian view of original sin. In fact, I don't know any who does, who right? doesn't believe in a historical Adam. So I'd say that's another consideration that Augustinian should hold. Thing is, I'm not sure if Peter Renz even believes in an afterlife. I mean, based off of some of the stuff that I've heard, some of him... Him and Jared Bias say uh, he's really another one I've reached really, out to. Thank you. Who's um? Yeah. He's reviewing my book, so we'll yeah. see. No, he. I I do really appreciate their work, though. Uh, the work of Peter Enns. It's really fascinating. Uh, once you get into like the critical aspects of like, yeah, the critical studies of scripture, it's like, oh my goodness, <laughs> it really it really makes it kind of impossible to be like any kind of biblical literist or or even the questions of like the modern ideas of what inerrancy has become um, really don't make much sense. But anyway, I digress on that point. I was thinking about like the, the topic of payment though, you know, and, and this kind of related to universalism to hell in general, but I mean, and it, it, I think it does pertain to um, the whole discussion around infant salvation or damnation or whatever, you know, is, is hell meant to be a payment? You know what I mean? And I think some, some people there just say like, yes, that's a given, you know, and, and, but some discussions I've had with other people who are more classical theists and not, not reformed, or they were reformed at one point, but they aren't anymore, or um, they were like, yeah, no, uh, John MacArthur's wrong. Like, like so john macarthur for example he said one time that your sins are either your, your sins are paid for no matter what they're either paid for on the cross or they're paid for in hell and my friend my dear friend um agreed with me that that, that didn't sound right in that um he, he disagrees with john macarthur in that hell or the judgment isn't necessarily like a payment. Uh, what do I mean by payment? I mean, is there a better language for that? Uh, um, so hmm. Recompense. Yeah, recompense, reparation. Reparation, yeah. It's, hell isn't necessarily a reparation. Um, and personally, this is where why I gravitate towards the orthodox view of heaven and hell, because it's more about our disposition. What, a, what, a, what how is our life been how have we spent our life in such a way that when we meet god is it gonna is the experience of being in his presence going to be hell or is it going to be heaven you know mm -hmm. and in that sense it's not about payments you know i feel like the west became so juridical about understanding the wrath of god or or the justice of god whereas the east they're just more like mysterious and holistic about it you know so i don't know what what your thoughts are is is hell payment well, we could do a whole other episode on atonement. It seems like this is leading to, right? Yeah. Maybe we'll do it some other time. As far as like, is hell payment? Well, obviously it's going to depend on who you ask, but if yeah. it is payment, it gets really weird because then it seems like God never receives back what he is due. This seems, yeah. It, it, so like um, justice is never actually satisfied or filled or mm. paid in full to tell us die, right? 
So um, I remember, to me, that was one of the problems when I started looking at Universalism that I had with the traditional view. I was like, you mean to say that like, if it is about payment, as you see, like God never actually recuperates what he is owed, right? Mm. So to me, um, that is deeply unsatisfying with the traditional view. Um, one thing that I want to put out in the footnote in my book that I find very telling is you'll have certain uh, evangelical Christians where they'll say penal substitutionary atonement theory is the gospel, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. They uh, equate the gospel with penal substitutionary atonement theory. And then they'll say, if you reject penal substitutionary atonement theory, like Brian Zond and other folks, then uh, you might not be a Christian at all, right? So there's this is it. I mean, this yeah. is the atonement theory, okay? So what's really interesting is they, they repeat that it's all about like retributive justice, retributive justice. Mm. And when you ask them about hell, though, it, they say, well, it's, all, it's natural consequences. You know, C.S. Lewis um, said, like, um, you're tormenting yourself. That is bizarre. So which one is it? You know? Exactly. <laughs> Make up it, your it, mind. It is entirely contradictory. And I wanted to point that in my book, just didn't have the space, but maybe I'll do it in a debate. Entirely contradictory. You cannot have your cake and eat it, right? If on the cross, Jesus is paying, uh, paying the price, right, for your sins, for what you deserve, and it is retributive, then what you will endure in hell will be retributive, Okay. Um, so I don't see much of a way around. In fact, even if they were going down the natural consequences route, it still really doesn't help because if it's still a punishment, right? Uh, and this, if God intends, because what they're trying to do is they're trying to avoid the language of torture, right? They'll say, well, God isn't torturing the individual because they're bringing this upon themselves. But if it is a punishment, then God is intending as a punishment, this individual torment themselves. I mean, that seems to me exactly what torture is, like in cases like solitary confinement, right? Um, so I entirely disagree with that escape route that they try to go down. So I'd say that um, the payment route has problems, right? Um, either it leads to these tensions that you see with people when it comes between, uh, with the atonement and with uh, their idea of hell, if they seem to be at off another, or it seems that um, God never recuperates back uh, what he is owed. So those are some flaws in that. Um, but there are universalists, though, who they are retributivists, and they think that hell can be in a sense a sort of payment so this is maybe how it works it is kind of like um if you have a child and a child breaks your window and you say you know that window costs um 21 dollars right so you have to work to pay for it and you know, the child works at first and the, and the child is just resistant to the uh, notion that they have to work to pay for this window but over time when they realize um that the wrong that they have done and how this has hurt you and your family how you you don't really have the funds to cover all these accidents um repeatedly and they feel this remorse. Once you realize that that is what your child is going through, you might say after the child only gets, let's say, $12, you say, don't worry about it. I'll cover the rest, right? And so maybe someone might say, this is how it works in hell. Is God, uh, the individual never gives God back what God is owed, but God covers the rest, so to speak, right? God says, you know, you gave me the $9, I'll cover the rest. Um, so that's way of one way of looking at it. It certainly seems like some universalists lean down that route. Um, I'm agnostic on it, uh, on the issue, because I do see the notion that God's talking about punishment, right? When he says that he will, that um, in, you see passages in Revelation, for example, and passages in 1 Corinthians and Romans, where it seems that God looks at one's sins and judges them accordingly. So you see language in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew 11, for example, where Jesus says that will be worse for some than it will be for others. Um so I think that maybe there's going to be some sort of retribution at play, but ultimately I believe that it furthers restoration, right? So um, if God is the good shepherd, God knows how to use his shears. 
So I know that the language of retribution is harsh for some people, but let's give an analogy, okay? So let's say, for example, I think I use this in my book, there's an individual named Carlo, and um, Carlo rapes this woman. <laughs> he rapes the woman, and um, that woman later goes on um, to become a teacher at a Catholic school, right? And through that experience, she's able to empathize with others and share her testimony. And she becomes a powerful source uh, for the Christian faith. But Carlo, on the other hand, he has a family of his own, okay, eventually. And he has a daughter. And it's really in looking at his daughter and her life and thinking about her that, that he feels the shame and the wrong of what he has done. But he's still got problems, right? He, he still has things that he's working through. I mean, he's still struggling with, with violence and with anger. and He wants to get better at it. Um, if that is the case, what should Carlo do? If Carlo was to hand himself over to the authority and say, look, I did this wrong deed, you know, back then, and I need help, right? Um, should he be taken in? Or should it be that if um, that woman who he rapes says, you know, I forgive you, Carlo, that we should let's let, just let bygones be bygones? I think this comes down to intuitions. I think there are some people who would say that Carlo still needs to pay for what he did, right? In fact, uh, in paying for what he did, it will help Carlo uh, not commit this again, right? This could be a deterrent or it could help him see even more how wrong it was that he did this deed. So um, that's one way of looking at it is that maybe if hell is payment, that that could still be a good thing. Um, so I just think that eventually this comes down to intuitions more than anything else. It is fascinating because I think at the end of the day, we, we all just don't really know <laughs> what it exactly. It seems like we're all grasping at air, I mean, it's thing. It's things that um, beyond the veil that we can't really fully comprehend, and maybe that's why, um, you know, in in the uncertainty, um, you know, adhering to this the universalist view just gives you so much more hope and um, peace as well, you know. And that's a, I think that's like an, it's an important aspect of, like, an application. Uh, and we we talked about this at large, you know, when uh, last time. But like, what are the applications of holding on to the universalist view, or even having a hopeful universalism? Is like the peace that you can have, um, knowing that ultimately God is good and He's going to do what's right, you know, and and He's love. But yeah, I mean, that's that's really interesting. I was I was fat, I was interested in, to hear what you had to say, but I I noticed you you're i like that and i think this is a good thing too it's it's a sign of maturity and humility that you're not as you're not very dogmatic on a lot of things you're just like well this some people think this and some people think this i'm kind of not sure you know it's <laughs> like it's really humble of you but yeah i don't know it's just fascinating no and there was something you said reminded me is that um so kind of addressing the topic that we're talking about with infant salvation is um when you're a universalist it really helps you in desiring to have children. Because I remember when I was younger and growing up, you know, people asked, you know, do you want to have kids? And I said, no, I don't want to have kids. And they'd ask why. I said, it, it just, it made sense to me. I said, well, if there's the chance that I could bring into the world someone who would experience, you know, eternal torment, I mean, forever in torment, how could I do such a thing? I said, I don't want to be even partly responsible for something like that. Um, so no, I don't want children. It was when I came to universalism that I thought, man, I mean, it's the 
I mean, just think about it. Every child that entered this world is going to experience etern- supremely worthwhile happiness, eternal bliss. I mean, this is incredible. The scope of what we're talking about. We're talking about <laughs> billions and billions and billions of persons. And so it makes me want to have children now, right? Now I can't wait to be a father. Um, and so it makes sense uh, if you hold the view that eventually all person will be saved. But if, if you hold the view that there's a chance that your child could be damned, you might be like one mother who I heard where she went to a sermon and the pastor said that once the child gets past the age of accountability, right? Tough luck. Mm. And so what did she do? She went home and drowned all six of her children, killed them all because she didn't want to take that chance. That's now, <clears throat> the interesting thing though is in that moment, who's being more rational, that woman or that pastor and those in the congregation? If it is what he has said, I think it's clear that that woman is far more rational than those other persons. Why on earth would you take the chance your child growing up past the age of accountability. And so this has been an argument that's used against the pro-life movement is, well, I mean, doesn't abortion like guarantee salvation to an individual, right? So mm. um, it's, yeah, it's definitely something to think about. That is fascinating. Are, are there any other side topics that you, uh, that you weren't able to share in your book? Sure. That you may or may not go into depth about? Sure. One more. And I, then I think uh, we're going to have to wrap up oh, yeah, here so we could go eat. <laughs> so the one other um, that comes to mind is the question of the pseudo evangelized, right? So there's mm-hmm. the question usually of the non evangelized, the unevangelized or of infants. But I also have a question about those who aren't properly evangelized. This happens all the time, right? All the time is where you will have a preacher who he will try to convert, let's say a Muslim. But the Muslim is able to ask questions the preacher doesn't know an answer to. And, and the Muslim seems to have more confidence in the Islamic faith and his ability to answer these difficult questions than the Christian faith, right? Um, well, what does God do with an individual like that? Like, does God say, shame on you for using your brain, right? Uh, when the pastor's arguments are atrocious. What about the case about Jews, for example, in World War II? who is the only time they ever heard the gospel, right? It's from a Lutheran minister who's a member of the Nazi Socialist Party, right? And, and, they, and this individual says, I want nothing to do with your Jesus, right? Thinking that Jesus is a white supremacist. So are they damned forever? <laughs> right? are they damned forever because they rejected the white supremacist version of Jesus? So um, yes, this is a question that I had hoped to address in my book and I couldn't yeah. just because I realized is how many tangents you could go into off of this subject of the pseudo evangelize. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I think even in America, you know, why is Christianity declining so much in America? And I think it's that very fact, you know, the prominent um, face or poster of poster people, children, whatever you call, <laughs> of who, what Christianity is, is white evangelical mm-hmm you know, sometimes racist, sometimes nationalist, um, sometimes homophobic. I mean, I'm not all the times, a lot of times xenophobic against immigrants, people of other religions, other ethnicities. So it's like, you know, I think in a lot of cases, there's a lot of pseudo evangelized people in America, you know? Um, And part of that is because um, you know, the consumeristic society that we live in as well. There's so there's so many options out there and we have so many options that 
and so many paths that we can choose that there's essentially no path, you know, and then it devolves into postmodernism and relativism and whatnot. And so it's like, and at the end of the day, it's like, you know, we're not, we're not giving people a clear picture of who Jesus is. So like when you have people out there who are saying Jesus was black, you know, um, Jesus, or even just pointing out that early Christians, how diverse early Christianity was, it was North Africa, the Middle East, um, it was all brown people, you know, so when you had people in the past 150 years, especially, you know, a lot of Southern white Christians who were against uh, integration, for example, or, or pro-segregation, you know, what do you do about those people who are, have they really been evangelized? And No, yeah, there was, um, it might have been Henry Thurmond, where it might have been him, where he talked about his grandmother and um, how she wanted nothing to do with reading the Apostle Paul. And he finally asked, you know, well, why is that? And she said, because it would be, they would never get to read the Bible. But the only time when they would hear it is when um, the slave masters would gather all the slaves together and they'd read, you know, slaves obey your masters. So she wanted nothing to do with the Apostle Paul. I said, that's a prime example of a pseudo evangelized individual, right? Um, that they're presented with this certain just proof text from this white supremacist uh why on earth should they read should they accept this uh, version of the gospel that's presented to them and so i think you're right i think it's a it's a big problem in america's history in particular i think um it's funny you bring up evangelicals because um i want to say this at the beginning that i'm a it depends who i'm talking to when they ask me are you an evangelical because the term has become so uh, just connected to po politics more than anything so it's usually a code word for uh, a radical view of pro-life or uh, anti-gay, anti-LGBTQ or pro-Trump especially, right? So it's more politics than anything. And so that's why I'm wary of using the term evangelical nowadays, which what a shame, right? Um, so I think that you're right that the question of the pseudo-evangelized is not just a question that we have for places in Europe, but it's right here in our whole backyard in America. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think ultimately this this is one of the best cases for universalism, in my opinion, because I think ultimately, aren't we all pseudo-evangelized? You know, we, none of us yes. who are alive today have experienced the beatific vision, you know? Is it is it really possible that everyone is given a fair chance? If, if, if the gospel is just about, especially how a lot of people view the gospel, is about mentally sending to, you know, acknowledge jesus as lord you know does everyone have enough information and then or, or enough inf yeah does everybody have enough information has everybody does everybody have everything they need to acquire faith you know and and that it, it's a really important question mm -hmm. there's something else i was going to say too i lost my train of thought but anyway well, it seems this seems to be connected to the question of divine hiddenness, right? Mm. And uh, which is an interesting topic in and of itself. Um, I think that, you know, there are different responses to the question of divine hiddenness. One that I like is actually that divine hiddenness may be a sign of divine mercy, because it, it may be that God knows that if he gives an individual sufficient uh, knowledge to affirm the existence of God in this lifetime, that they'll hate him. Right. Um, maybe because of their condition, maybe they're from a country full of genocide. Right. 
if they come to believe that there is a God, they'll think that he's evil for permitting it, right? So, so God withholds that information for a time until it is right. Um, I think I use an example in my book uh, from, World, it could be something like in World War II, where there could be a Jew, for example, who, um, because of what's going on in the Holocaust and with this World War, understandably, they are averted to the notion of there being a God. So God with, withholds that information until the proper time. Um, out of love for the individual. Um, another response also, it could be that we know from passages like Matthew 11 and others that, um, like you said, to whom much is given, much is expected. And so the more and more knowledge God gives you, the more and more culpable you are. So it, it could be that God knows that if he granted sufficient knowledge to this individual and they rejected him, that um, they're deserving of even greater punishment than they would be in the case if he didn't grant that information, right? So it's, it's because of divine love that God hides himself, so to speak, in that situation. So yeah, I think there are different responses to that, but like you said, I mean, the stakes on the traditionalist view are exceedingly high. I mean, we're talking about eternal destinies at stake. Off of information, I'd say for some individuals, it's not persuasive in the slightest, right? And it's such little information to go off of to make any a decision that has eternal consequences. So I agree with you. I think it's absolutely absurd to say that is at all, and that's all fair, but also how could you see that as loving too, really? Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, and I, I what I was going to say is, you know, I come across a lot of people who aren't Christians, but they live in such Christ-like manners, you know? Mm -hmm. And even, even some of them, one of my friends like an atheist and he's, an OT and he works with children with autism. He does all this community service work and all this just awesome work. He's really passionate about the work that he does and, and he cares about people, you know? So it kind of reminds me of Matthew 25 when, when Jesus said, I was thirsty and you, you gave me water. I was naked and you clothed me. I was homeless. And, and the sheep will say, where, when did I do that? You know what I mean? Did those, is Jesus saying that the sheep, don't necessarily have to mentally ascend to proclaiming that Jesus is Lord in order to be saved. You know what I mean? Cause they were saying, when did we serve you? I don't remember doing that. You know what I mean? Like it's really, it's really fascinating to think about. There's like the pseudo evangelized, but then there's people who live out the way of the kingdom without symbolically proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, you know? And that, that's what really fascinates me as well. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's interesting that you say that. It reminds me of uh, the work of Randall Rouser, who, uh, folks who haven't heard of him. I'd say definitely go check him out. Is he has several books in this topic, and he points out that you'll see a certain conservative evangelicals. It, it almost sounds like a, a relationship is with doctrines more than like a person, for example. So it always comes down to doctrine, right? It's like, are, are you believing the right doctrine? I'm like, well, how about not just the right orthodoxy, but orthopraxy, like you were pointing out. Like if we look at Jesus, for example, with the thief on the cross, so he turned to him and say, you know, sir, um, you did not believe in icon veneration. You, sir, did not believe in the Trinity. You didn't believe in the hypostatic union. You didn't believe in any of this stuff. Tough luck, you know, tough cookies. No, I mean, he doesn't do any of that. I, I doubt this individual. I don't think at all he believed in the Trinity. I, I don't think he believed in the incarnation. And yet Jesus says to him, today, you shall be with me in paradise, right? So I think we need to be careful to not confuse descriptions of Christ with Christ himself right? Uh, my relationship is with Christ. It's not necessarily with descriptors of Christ. I'm not saying that descriptors aren't important. Um, but Eleanor Stump uses an example where um, she has a daughter and her daughter had 
would have a friend that would come over and she'd hang out at the house and uh, at Mrs. Stump's house. And one time she saw Mrs. Stump give a speech, right? It was a, and if you ever read Eleanor Stump or watched Eleanor Stump, you know how good it can be. And the child was surprised, right? And the child uh, said after, like, I, I didn't know that your mom could do that. I didn't know your mom was like that, right? And uh, this, this bears a question. Did she know Mrs. Stump, right? Say, of course she knew Mrs. Stump, right? She just didn't know certain things about Mrs. Stump, certain other things. And so um, this, I think, raises an interesting question is, if salvation is about coming to know God, then there are certain things that you just have to know about God in order to be saved in that sense. And so what do we do with the pseudo-evangelized? What do we do with the unevangelized? Well, I think that if, if God knows that, like you said, an atheist, for example, he's, he doesn't have the information. Well, if God knows the information that's sufficient to bring this individual to faith, and he knows that the, that individual will respond positively, right? Why wouldn't he do that, right? Why wouldn't he supply that information? And in fact, I think he does. Um, now, on the case of the atheist, I think that um, it reminds me of William Paul Young, where he wrote a book, um, Lies We Tell Ourselves About God. He said he was talking to an uh, atheist. He said, you know, I don't believe in God. He said, what do you believe in? And he says, well, I believe in love. And William Paul Young smiled, right? Because we know of a verse, 1 John 4 and 16, God is love. So yeah, maybe this individual is having a hard time wrapping mind around what he's been told that maybe he was told that well, God is this big, giant, bearded man in the sky, or maybe um, he's been presented with this uh, model of God that just he doesn't find satisfactory. But there's something, there's a kernel there he believes in, right? He, he believes in love. And I think we need to start there. And I think that God will start there, right? So um, one, one more thing I'd add is uh, Randall Rouser has a book about atheists, uh, is the atheist my neighbor? Great book, very short, highly recommend it. And he used an example that I'll tweak a little bit. Let's say that there's this individual uh, who he's on the way back home, right? He's on this car ride back home and all of a sudden there's a terrible, he's involved in a terrible accident. He's on the side of the road, alone, bleeding, car destroyed, right? And he's waving for help. And he sees his car on the horizon. And you know, it's a pastor, it's a celebrity pastor, right? Big wig. And he's riding and he sees the man on the side of the road. He looks at the clock. He says, oh, I'm going to be late for service. Blurs right past him, right? And the man's in agony. He's wailing. He can't believe that this person just saw him and left him. But then he sees another car on the horizon. You know, this one is a, he's a professor at renowned evangelical uh, institution, right? Has all his credentials. But he's late to Sunday school. Don't you know he has to preach, you know, teach about superlapsarianism, right? And so he leaves him behind in the dust. Now this individual thinks that all hope is lost. He's about to just plummet into the depths of despair. And then he sees another car coming. And this has a bumper sticker that says, Atheist for Dawkins. I mean, this guy is wearing his colors, loud and proud. He sees that individual on the side of the road. And he swerves over, gets that man in his car, takes him to the hospital, pays that man's bill and says, whatever this man needs, I'll cover it. Now... That's the good Samaritan. If you were to stand, yeah, exactly. If you were to stand before God on judgment day, which of those individuals would you want to be? The atheist. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? Um, so I think that it's an open question as far as atheists in particular, as to what extent they know God, right? Uh, I think that sometimes it is that certain individuals reject inadequate pictures of God, right? 
more than anything else. And, but I think that if an individual like this was to exist, as I think many of them do, um, that God would supply them with a sufficient knowledge in order to bring them to a saving point. So I'm not necessarily an inclusivist in the sense that I think that there are certain things that, uh, that unevangelized and pseudo-evangelized don't know about God. And that if salvation involves being brought into intimacy with God, that God then needs these people to know that information or wants them to know that information so that they can be in that sort of relationship. So then he makes that information known to that individual. Yeah. That's well said. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for joining me again. Thanks for reaching out. It's always great to talk to you and we'll have to get together again and talk about some more crazy topics. I know uh, I've been definitely wanting to talk to you about uh, different ideas of justification and the new perspective on Paul, just because you're, you're in the know, you know, I, I'm not in the theological schools, but you're my way in, you're my ticket into what, what's going on. What, what are the people talking about, thinking about these days? That's right. As long as you buy the book and you have me on again and promote it, <laughs> Hey, I'll come on. <laughs> I will. I will buy this book because it, man it's a one-stop shop it's it's everything you need i mean if you don't need thomas talbot you don't need robin perry you don't need david bentley hart because you'll probably be repulsed by him but there's a very kind and honest and authentic voice of andrew Veronich, the 22 year old wonderkind <laughs> from new jersey that's right well thank you for having me peter i always Absolutely. enjoy talking with you is an absolute pleasure and we definitely need to do this again. And like you said, yeah, we definitely sure. need to talk about the new perspective for sure. Oh, I'd love to hear about your thoughts on that. Well, anyway, have a great evening. God bless. You too, Peter. Thank you when for having stop. me. Lord, Lord, the nature of your wrath, it's not an easy path, but I'm willing to trust. Though I'm dying in the dust